I'm Rob Forsyth. Welcome to Liberalism in Question. In this half-hour podcast series from the Centre for Independent Studies, we explore questions and challenges to liberalism today. My guest today is a man who once dreamed of doing track and field at the Olympics, but in fact has spent all his adult life in the world of ideas, both as a journalist, a broadcaster, an academic, and now as the managing director of a think tank dedicated to liberalism. He's actually my boss, Tom Switzer. Welcome. Rob, great to be here. And can I say from the outset, congratulations on this series uh, you're putting together on liberalism for CIS. They're, they're always worth listening to, and I'm well, glad to be here. Well, let's hope the day does not mar that record. <laughs> you can subject me to as much scrutiny now, as you like. Tom, um, the CIS... Uh, is dedicated to liberalism, and often I hear the word used around the office, classical liberalism. One thing I'm discovering in this series is that liberalism is a very loose word. It can refer to things progressive in the United States, the name of a political party here in Australia. Um, it can refer to a whole range of activities or a whole range of philosophies. What is classical liberalism? Well, let me start with a joke. My friend uh, Tony Abbott, uh, shortly after he was elected to Parliament, in the mid-1990s, he went on a US State Department tour around Washington, D.C. And he was identified as a rising Liberal Party star and critic of the Republicans, because he was a leader of the monarchists. And um, at the end of the week or so touring Washington think tanks, uh, the convener of the State Department program said, oh, Mr. Rabbit, what did you think about your time in Washington? And Tony said, well, look, uh, you know, I've been going to the Brookings Institute, the Urban Institute, um, Greenpeace, all these left-wing groups, and I have to say, I don't really feel comfortable here at all. <laughs> to which the lady re- replied, well, Mr. Rabbit, we heard you're a, a rising liberal star and critic of Republicans. <laughs> Got lost in translation. because well, Tony's a leading monarchist and the Liberal Party in Australia it has different connotations than liberalism in America. Indeed. In fact, Tony Abbott would be a social progressive, a social conservative rather. Absolutely. Well, what is classical liberalism? What is this thing which you're dedicating your life to, to defend? Simply put, the Enlightenment. You know, the principles of the Enlightenment in the 18th and the 19th century, rebelling against authority, um, ascribed status, the belief in meritocracy, in hard work, initiative. Um, my friend the late and great Owen Harries, who was a senior fellow here at the Centre for Independent Studies in the 2000s. Um, he's wrote a very important essay for Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser in 1980. We will reprint the speech in a collection of articles dedicated yep, to Owen yep. uh, later in 2022. And he just made the point that the fundamental of liberal beliefs is the right to freedom to choose. Free to Choose, and that, of course, is the title of one of Milton Friedman's famous books in the late 70s and early 1980s. And from that belief, this was Owen's argument, and I think this is the mainstream view of liberalism, from that belief comes a commitment to the private enterprise economy, which not only gives us the freedom of economic choice, but itself requires the freedoms without which we could not have innovation, technological progress, risk-taking, the saving and investment of capital, all the things necessary for a flourishing, competitive free market economy. And from that 
leads to economic growth, which increases the freedom of economic choice, but also the range of opportunities open, open to us. So I think, in a nutshell, that's what classical liberalism means to me. It's an economic doctrine, do you say? Well, it's also a social doctrine as well. But in, in, in my sense, if you expand uh, economic choice, you're going to make people freer and more prosperous. And all the available evidence around the world indicates that freer economies are going to lead to more prosperous and, and pro-growth economies. Well, let, let me push back right away on that. Um, it, could it not be argued that freedom is great for those who've got a, who've got a good head start in life? But others, it'll only exacerbate the inequalities with those who don't. And that, um, in fact, one of the results of the perhaps misleadingly called neoliberal economics of the uh, 80s and 90s has been a sense of greater inequality, which has led, in fact, to people becoming disillusioned with the liberalism. Well, let's look at Australia. Um, up until the late 70s and early 80s, from Federation in 1901 right through to the later Fraser era, uh, Australia had a very protected economy. Uh, the state was very interventionist. Um, the Keynesian welfare state, if you like, uh, ran the show. And uh, as a result of the market-oriented reforms that a Labor government under Prime Minister Bob Hawke, backed by the opposition leaderships of Peacock and Howard and Hewson, uh, they put in place a bunch of productivity-enhancing reforms. And I think that all things considered, that led to what was really a three-decade period of, of uninterrupted economic growth. Uh, that was a, a world record or, or a record for the OECD. And the critics of that economic reform agenda at the time, in the 80s and the 90s, derided as economic rationalism. That's what they said. Yes, I remember hearing that phrase. Yeah, yeah. But, but uh, they made the argument uh, that uh, and you see, you still hear this today in some parts of the Labor Party and certainly the Greens, and even to some extent on the One Nation right, they want to justify more government intervention in the economy uh, because rampant inequality uh, is evident in Australia. But as the Productivity Commission pointed out in a groundbreaking report in 2018, and we at CIS did a lot to cover this. Um, the sustained growth that we experienced in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s, that higher living standards across all income groups. And this is an issue that's really relevant today in the election campaign because Labor, under the opposition leader Anthony Albanese, they are saying that casualisation in the workplace um, is, um, is getting worse, but it's actually at the same level since the mid-1990s. Involuntary job loss as a proxy for job insecurity has dropped by 20, 25% in the past two decades. And so my point in response to your excellent question about inequality, in the name of reducing inequality, those politicians want to raise taxes and put in place other government obstacles to the kind of risk-taking and hard work that allows Australians to climb the income ladder so rapidly. And that's what liberalism is about. Is the problem... Let's, let's grant that everybody's got everybody's better off relative to where they were, but some people are better off relative to others. The inequality is not the same as uh, as rising prosperity. You can have rising prosperity and rising inequality at the same time. Well, let me paraphrase Gary Banks, a senior fellow at CIS, who for a long time was the chairman, the esteemed chairman of the Productivity Commission. He makes the point: we should not worry so much about inequality; we should worry about the people who use inequality 
as a political club to promote policies that reduce opportunity. And again, that gets back to the essence of liberalism, opportunity. The, your argument for liberalism, therefore, is really an empirical one. It works better. Well, I think certainly in the case of Australia, that economic reform agenda from 1983 when Bob Hawke was elected right through to the end of the Howard Costello era, yeah, I think the results are pretty clear. You perhaps had touched on this already, Tom, but uh, if, if empirically it works better, why don't more people believe in it? Well, that's a very good question, and I think a lot of it comes down to the failure of the political class to sell the benefits of economic reform. Um, I think that the enemies of liberalism and economic reform have done a very good job of selling the mantra that our lives are worse off today than they were generations ago. Um, To give you an example, in 2018, one of the first things I did at CIS was we commissioned YouGov to conduct a poll among Australian millennials. So these are folks born between the early 80s, late 90s. And that poll showed that 58% of these young Australians believed that socialism was a good thing, 58%, whereas only 18% had an unfavourable unfavourable, uh, view. Um, Now, they also made the point that living standards um, uh, in Australia, we, we, we were worse off. Uh, in 2018 than we were in 1978. This is is what the uh, respondents thought. That's right. 62% of millennials believe that. And as I said to you before, if you go back and look at all the available evidence from the mid-1980s to probably about 2012, we experienced our biggest national income boom since the gold rushes. Um, And until COVID, we had the longest uh, period of... uh, uninterrupted economic growth, and gets back to my other point, very little widening of income inequality. That is rather depressing response. Uh, Well, I think it's back to your point that there's a widespread view that economic reform has not been a good thing for Australia. And did we ask them what they thought socialism was, by the way? (laughs) Well, that was where it gets a bit confusing. The great Roman statesman Cicero pointed out, to be ignorant of what happened before you were born is to remain a child. And we're a bit mischievous with this question, but nevertheless, we asked people what they thought about Mao Zedong, the communist leader of China. You asked about some genuine communist socialists. Yeah, yeah. Only 21% of those questioned, these are Australian millennials, uh, they knew who Mao Zedong was. And um, 51% said they knew nothing of him at all. Just 26% were familiar with Lenin, the Bolshevik leader, the Russian Revolution in 1917, and 34% with Joseph Stalin. Striking ignorance of well-known socialists or communist leaders. Perhaps we should put these questions to the education um, program here because that strikes me as a tremendous value of history. Okay, so you're saying liberalism is freedom to choose. It particularly manifests itself, in your your understanding, in economic freedom, uh, which which you you believe leads to significant growth of uh, of, uh, wealth, even if it may at the same time lead to some relative inequality, but that people don't see it as positive as it really is because of ignorance and because of others who have been out there maliciously or pushing an, another program against it. That, that's your understanding of yeah, what's going I mean, on. My, and I've made this point in several articles in the mainstream press, the Financial Review, The Australian, The Sydney Morning Herald and on the ABC, but it's a pretty banal point for people who support the CIS mission. But it, 
needs to be repeated frequently. Um, all economies that have enjoyed sustained growth and have broadened prosperity, they've done so through free trade and free markets. And our argument at CIS, and this goes back to when Greg Lindsay, my predecessor and friend, founded CIS in 1976, regulation is the enemy of prosperity. And prosperity is the only means of providing the public services that socialists are so fond of claiming they prize. Let's come back to this a little bit. You, you would concede, I trust, that to have a free society, you need some. You need law. Otherwise, you have uh, the wild west. We're not libertarians. We're classical. No, 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 Key no, no. distinction. Oh, yes, I, I, that's the one I'm trying to push with you. That one. We need laws. Uh, they need strong, strong institutions, not just laws. Institutions need to be strong. Yeah. Uh, central banking, the courts. Mm-hmm. In fact, where there's a weak, where there's not the rule of law, where there's not independent judiciary, freedom soon goes because you have the tyranny of the powerful. You've, you've conceded these points. They're important points. But do, do liberals make those points enough? I'm wondering whether, in a sense, we've, we've given half the case. And well, the reason I want to raise this is uh, one of the great enemies of, of freedom would be not the state, but crony capitalism. The big, big yeah. um, large companies using, using the state to become rent seekers against the common good. And this, we see this constantly in, in our society, the big, big, big money yeah. running, trying to, and, and they are as much an enemy of, sorry, would you agree they're as much an enemy of, of liberty as this big government? Yeah. I mean, true liberals, in my judgment, aren't pro-business. They're pro-markets. And putting this in very simple terms. Just say that again, that's very important, that distinction. You're saying they're pro, they're not pro-business in itself, no. but they're pro-markets. Pro-markets, pro-initiative, pro-limited regulation. Pro-competition. Pro-competition, absolutely. That allows free enterprise to prosper and help create growth and jobs. But, you know, let me put it in these terms. This is Enoch Powell, um, the maverick Tory MP who ultimately became an independent Um He famously said, you don't tax a loss, you tax a profit. And and let me just... You understand, of course. It's a key point. You don't tax a loss, you only tax a profit because without profit, which is to say without capitalism, without the free market economy, you can't raise the revenue, the government revenue, to provide for the healthcare and health and education and defence. The so there's a, there's a widespread view, I think, unfortunately, that liberalism means no government. We support government. Yes. We believe that you need proper government functions like health and education and defence and social services, but you're only going to find the money for that by taxing well, profit, not by taxing losses. Can you go back to, uh, by the way, Enoch Powell taught Greek at the University of Sydney. Indeed, in the early 30s. Yeah, I, I, thought, <laughs> I thought I know something you didn't know. You, you do know. Have you read Simon Heffer's biography of Enoch Powell? No, I haven't. I haven't. Simon Heffer, past guest at CIS, wrote a magisterial biography of Enoch Powell. It was published just uh, around the time he died I'll in the add, late 90s. The other thousands of books I must read before I die. <laughs> Only the Roman is called. It's an outstanding book. Can you go back to saying business versus, versus the market? Yeah. And, and you said you're pro-market. But not necessarily pro-business. Why not necessarily pro-business? Well, businesses, uh, um, if they had their way, would want to monopolize the market. And uh, I, I think if you're a true believer in competition and freedom right. of choice, okay. you want to have uh, more opportunity for all. There's that so we're not, we're not for government and we're not for business. We're for markets. Got you. 
in fact, there's a, there's a quote I think you may remember from Adam Smith about that. Uh, was it merchants net really ever get together? The, the conversation has not turned very soon to uh, yeah. con con contravene the public good. So we need a strong government to protect the market that be yeah. a market, but not so strong that the market is taken away from being the market. Effective government. Effective government. And I think, unfortunately, there is a perception or a misperception that classical liberals believe in no government. That, that's a furphy. And, look, we've had two years of the COVID pandemic, and I hate acknowledging this, but it's the truth. Jonathan Friedland, the well-known left liberal columnist from the Guardian newspaper at the height of the pandemic, March 2020, said, just as there are no atheists on a sinking ship, there are no free marketeers during a pandemic. Sometimes, <laughs> I hate to acknowledge this, you need a more <laughs> interventionist government, but they're in very special circumstances like in wartime or a pandemic. I'm Rob Forsyth. This is Liberalism in Question, and though you might not believe it, my guest is Tom Switzer from the Centre for Independent Studies. Now, Tom, can I ask about social liberalism? We've talked about economics so far, but liberalism is also a program... I think it, I think a liberal society is one where the where the state refuses to decide the big questions. It refuses to judge whether there is a god or not a god, uh, to judge what what the good life is for. In fact, it strangely vacates what where once perhaps the church or crown um, or in, in other totalitarian, and therefore it's kind of, there's a gap there. Now, this means that there's a number of number of philosophies about life which are compatible with liberalism. Some are good and some are bad. I think you told me once you, you're a conservative liberal, is that right? Or, or a liberal conservative? Yeah, I mean, I... What I, are you? I'd like to, I mean, look, labels, particularly in the post-Cold War era, they do foster simplistic divisions and they create artificial alliances. But in terms of philosophy, I'm self-evidently a liberal for the reasons that I made yes, clear. Yes, yes. But I like to see myself as someone, and I'm not alone, who bridges the divide between classical liberalism and classical conservatism. So for me, the best definition of classical conservatism uh, was put forward by not just Edmund Burke at the height of the French Revolution, but his modern-day adherent Samuel Huntington. He wrote a very famous essay mm. in American Political Science Quarterly in 1957. Uh, Professor Huntington was only 29 years of age, and he made the point that the true antithesis of conservatism is not liberalism or even socialism, it's radicalism. And that is best defined in terms of an attitude towards change. So for Huntington, true conservatives believe that temperament should trump doctrine and the single best test of temperament is a person's attitude towards change. So to be a true conservative you're wary of change in general. You're always conscious that it involves loss. Unintended consequences. As well as, absolutely, it's fraught with the danger of unintended consequences. But they're also, true conservatives are positively hostile to sudden, radical, disruptive change. So in that regard, a lot of my friends and colleagues when I worked at the Australian newspaper in the 2000s were shocked that I, as a conservative, opposed the Iraq invasion. I oppose it because I believed it was an unconservative war. Mm, mm. Now, you um, could argue it was a liberal war, regime change to bring about democracy, but that's where it clashed with my conservatism. In fact, this may, you may want to temper your initial early statement to me that 
classical liberalism is a product of the Enlightenment. Of course, the Enlightenment is just as vague and as diverse. Mm. And it was the, in the name of the Enlightenment that the, that the King and Queen of France were arrested, and which Burke so alarmed Edmund Burke. So yeah. it's not that fact. There is a, there is a tone. I, in this series, I have picked up a theme on this matter. The, the enemy of liberalism and certain forms of conservatism is a radical utopianism, mm. that the world can be made really good, we can really solve our problems, and that that's what leads to, either on the left or right, the extremity and violence, which is almost catastrophic for human well-being. Do you agree with that? Uh, well, I think if you look at the, if you read the works of, say, Francis Fukuyama in the last 25 to 30 years, uh, he is your utopian liberal. I think I think he's a more, I'm hoping to have him on the program, by the way, I think he's now a chastened utopian liberal. Yeah. <laughs> but the point is that there came a period in the late 80s and early 1990s and he was not alone. He reflected brilliantly the spirit of the times that with the end of the Cold War and the collapse of Soviet communism, the world had reached the so-called end of history, which Fukuyama defined in Hegelian terms course, as the end point of humankind's ideological evolution and the universalization of Western liberal democracy. And a lot of liberals, a lot of classical liberals embraced that view. However, uh, as a conservative, and, and I became more conservative, yes. I got mugged by reality uh, during the 1990s and 2000s. I recognised that, um, that there was no such thing. Just as Hegel thought it was the Prussian state in the, in the <laughs> early 18th century, uh, it's very tempting to call the game is over, it keeps playing. Well, Why did it? Why did it go differently? Um, liberalism is under attack from left and right today, mm-hmm. from the p- popularist authoritarian or even unpopular populist authoritarianism, uh, openly being criticised. I'm not sure we should take very seriously the intellectual balance of President Xi, but he's, or, or Putin, I don't think they stand as genuine intellectual contributors, but there are people out there on the right mm-hmm. who are, but b- why are liberalism's lack of heart and there's the left, the woke left, which regards liberalism um, as at best irrelevant, at worst a conspiracy of the powerful, um, and particularly draw attention to liberal liberalism's association with slavery and colonialism. That's become very much the challenges today. So something happened since the early 80s. Perhaps the Iraq war was part of it. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, these terms left and right go back to the French Revolution of 1789. Yes, where, where you sat, yeah. In the assembly. I think uh, Gideon Ruckman, the distinguished columnist at the Financial Times in London, whom I had the great pleasure of interviewing on my ABC Radio National program about his new book about autocracy, he makes the point, and this is not a novel view, but he makes the point eloquently that what we're seeing now is this new politics and it's become increasingly evident in North America and in Europe, less so here, that's another story, but this new politics, according to Ruckman, is one in which the two dominant camps are not left and right, but nationalists and internationalists. Nationalists, internationalists. Well, wouldn't the liberals be on the side of the internationalists? Well, this Believing is a very in, good question. Universal human rights yeah. uh, against the notion of, of, um, of, of blood and soil mm. um, well, so, or, or not. In the French context, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, he, he, he certainly, I mean, he told his biographer, Sophie Petter, from The Economist, that the, the, the new political split is between those who are afraid of globalisation and those who see globalisation as an opportunity. I'd put myself in the Macron camp in that regard. I think that economic globalisation, all things considered, 
has been a good thing. I would have thought liberals, as you defined it, individualism, freedom to choose, I guess respecting nation, there's a tension, mm. a tension here, isn't it, between your, the conservative you and the liberal you. Conservative you may be a nationalist, but the liberal you, an internationalist. Yeah, and then you've got people like Le Pen in France, but also Donald Trump, and there are many, Clive Palmer to some extent, their argument is that the future does not belong to the globalists, the future belongs to the patriots. So it's it's kind of hard to see where liberalism, as we've defined it, fits in here mm. because it's on the one, yeah, on the one hand, I'm attracted to the idea of economic globalisation and free trade for the reasons I've mentioned. But on the other hand, I do believe in national sovereignty. And I think this is increasingly going to define I, I the nature think, of Western politics. I don't think that national sovereignty is inconsistent with um, liberalism. Yeah. Because the nation is, is a... Is a by, by nation, I don't necessarily mean all the same culture, but the nation state is the only place where laws can be... We have the rule of law, mm. have the freedom to engage. I think I... I think actually Fukuyama wrote something recently in his book about liberalism and its discontents. Yes. To defend the nation state against um, the alternative, which is what? An international order run by bureaucracy or free for all where the rich, where the big countries screw the small countries. But in the European context, those who championing, who are championing the loudest for national sovereignty tend to be those who are very much against yes. global institutions, and particularly against the EU. And against well, you know. yeah, I mean, these things get complicated. Um, I think what's happening in the Western world, by the way, Rob, is we're at the point now where we don't have this old left-right ideological divide between capital and labour. It's now defined increasingly around identity issues, particularly those shaped around values. So in that environment... You've got centre-right parties that are making huge electoral inroads in working-class, erstwhile Labor constituencies. So you had Boris Johnson in late 2019, a Tory, smashing the Red Wall, the so-called Red Wall of Northern England and the Midlands and creating a new constituency for Tories. Donald Trump, in his own way in 2016, smashed the blue wall of those Rust Belt working class constituencies of Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and that area and in the Midwest. And then, of course, uh, in Australia, as Tony Abbott pointed out on the election night when he lost his seat of Warringah, he made it very clear that what was happening in Australia in 2019 was that um, the coalition was doing very well in working seats, but doing less well in progressive, metropolitan, erstwhile, safe liberal seats. And that we've, we've seen that too in Australia just recently. Absolutely, yeah. Are, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of liberalism? Well, I've been generally optimistic. I wrote an article in the Australian newspaper late last year and you hosted a, a debate between me and our chairman, Nicholas Moore, on this question. I mean, I'm 50 years of age and for most of my adult life, I have been living through a very prosperous period of time. Mm. Um you know, incomes, uh, living standards have improved dramatically. If you look at poverty, sanitation, malnutrition, child labour, personal freedom. There wasn't child labour 50 years ago, Tom. Well, no, not in Australia, but certainly in, <laughs> in, the, in, world, in the developing world. No, this is my point. No, you, look at, no, right. you look at you're the right. living standards of the oh, developing yes. world today compared to 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, Globalisation right. has been a good thing for the developing Absolute world. Absolute poverty has been hit. Absolutely. And also, get a lot of this. In 1900, the average life expectancy globally was about 30 years of age. Today, it's about 70. 
So, so you, that's made me be an optimist for the last 50 years, but since COVID, I'm becoming increasingly depressed. Sorry to hear this, Pat. We could talk about it. <laughs> well, you heard me at the, 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 the what, event. What's, did on by this. depressed, you mean what? You'd... Well, I think that the COVID crisis um, means, just put it economically, you just think about the huge economic stimulus that governments have been pump-priming the economy with. Yes. Um, you know, all that borrowing, the additional money pumped into the debt-ridden economies to fight the virus. We've got a real problem now with rising inflation, something we haven't seen in 40 years. Now, this is more evident in the United States and parts of Europe and Britain than it is here in Australia, but the, the cold, hard reality is that will lead to higher interest rates, arguably more intergenerational inequality, particularly for those people who can't get into the housing market. I was going to ask about this. Yeah, and and what's, yeah. what's truly sad, Rob, in my judgment, is that the electorates, and this is particularly evident in this country, we're so happy with what's called the magic money tree, we're oblivious that the costs will continue to be paid by our children and grandchildren. But this is a fundamental point that I've made time and again. My colleagues, uh, Robert Carling and Simon Cowan, make this point eloquently. It's not going to be the wealthy who end up footing the tax bill. It'll be everyone. Eventually, those bills will have to be paid off. And that's one of the reasons why I'm depressed. I'm also depressed about the rise of things like cancel culture, uh, the costs of climate mitigation, and also the rising power of China. Um, these are dark times, I think, uh, over the next 10 to 20 years. When my mother came to Sydney to start her teacher training, to be a primary school teacher, the subs were in Sydney Harbour. This was in May 1942. Yeah. How many was that, 90 years ago? No, no, no 80 years ago. And that generation went through it. Oh. I'm older than you, but our generation have had a good life. But this last few years, we've seen the pandemic, and now the the most significant, I think, most significant European war since the end of the Second World War. I think it's fair, despite so there have been some big, big blows. I'm let me put another case to you. The high point of liberalism, confidence was after the Second World War, when freedom hadn't been lost, was regained. At the end of the eighties, when the fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of history. That, that, that was hubris, but nonetheless, it felt like that because we'd got away from it. Uh, we're seeing now fighting in Ukraine for human freedom that we've not seen before, which may have an effect of actually focusing the mind of the somewhat lazy, take it complacent liberals or the liberal societies to start valuing liberalism again. Valuing yeah, freedom. I mean, I would distinguish myself from many other classical liberals and indeed conservatives in Europe, America and Australia on this question, I think that the crisis in Ukraine um, is more complicated than the media conventional wisdom lets on. I think it's really a legacy of unsound policies that Washington and Brussels pursued after the end of the Cold War by pushing NATO, the EU, mm. closer to Russia's frontiers, by betraying an agreement between Gorbachev and Washington in the early 1990s that in exchange for a reunified Germany to be part of NATO, the West would not move east. And unfortunately, what we've seen in the late 90s and throughout the 2000s and even since then 
NATO has expanded its security obligations right onto Russia's doorstep, and now the chickens are coming home to roost. This is not an isolated view, by the way. No, no, no. But I don't, I don't think but, that is the reason for my depression. I'm more worried, frankly, if we're going to think about geopolitical terms, as an Australian and as someone who's concerned about world order, I'm far more worried about the rise of China than I am about the decline of Russia. And let's face it, Russia is in serious decline. Oh, yes. And my question wasn't whether the, whether the West has made a number of serious mistakes. I think there's been a serious number, endless number of mistakes since the fall of the Berlin Wall by the West and the chickens have come home to risk. But that in no way, no way uh, changes the nature of the war, which is a society which is illiberal, mm. oh, yeah. fighting against the West because of its liberalism, and whether rightly or wrongly, a Ukraine that's going to be forced more and more to, to embrace Western values yeah. under the pressure. But, you know, I've been struck by how so many people in the West are portraying Ukraine as the embodiment of a liberal, democratic, vibrant <laughs> state. I mean, yeah. this country has been ridden with corruption since its independence in the early 1990s. And uh, I think its leadership, although it's well-intended, it's, um, it's led its country down the primrose path. Do you think, my, my question is not, that that's a very interesting point, do you, is the battle itself, uh, notwithstanding it's been, it's, it's stere- there are stereotypes in this battle, right? It's not, it's not, may not be, certainly is not accurate in every day, it cannot be. Nonetheless, we're seeing for the first time mm. a fighting for liberalism, whether it's deserved or undeserved, that in a way galvanised people to start valuing things that they hitherto took for granted. You know, I think... This is a very good way of describing the tensions between conservatism, as I've described it, and liberalism. And I'm caught in the middle here because as a liberal, I instinctively want to support national self-determination. Ever since Woodrow Wilson went to Versailles at the end of World War I, there's been a widespread view, at least in the West, that we respect the rights of small countries and we stand up to bully boys. And that's a noble intention. And that's classical liberalism. Yes, But the conservatism that comes up against it is this idea that the tragedy of great power, politics, as uh, Professor John Mearsheimer from the University of Chicago put it in his influential book in 2001, Mearsheimer, of course, being a past guest at CIS. And his argument is that all great powers play hardball to protect what they see as their vital strategic interests in their near abroad. And what Russia is doing in Ukraine right now is not dissimilar to what the United States has done in many parts of Latin America for decades. And and um, and on and on. Well, that's right. And it's, it's, a, it's a brutal world out there. It's sad, it's tragic, but that's the way so, the world yeah. has worked and it always has, and despite when, the Enlightenment. And even when Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, that did not apply to all the colonies. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so there was There's utter, always been the hypocrisy there. of the West. Yeah. Well, a very nuanced discussion, I think. A man somewhat torn. <laughs> Optimistic, but does pessimistic. My, does my head in. But, does he head in. But, but nevertheless, we can be proud to be classical liberals because history, all things considered, has been on our side, Rob. All things considered. Very liberal way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> this has been another podcast from the Centre for Independent Studies. For decades, the CIS has been an independent voice working to deliver evidence-based policy within a classical liberal framework. We rely solely on the generosity of people like you for donations to advance our cause. Head to cis.org.au to see how you can get involved. I'm Rob Forsyth. Thank you for listening.